0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode.
1: So, we have the title Confession, Penance, Indulgences, Forgiveness. What is the biblical meaning? And though it may appear from these title that these are separate issues, they are very much all related. They're said to be a sequence, a process from an acknowledgement of sin to becoming reconciled with God. And so the aim of this evening is to consider whether or not these four phases of this process is true Bible teaching or some kind of popular church tradition. And so the logical starting place would be to understand what religion, or what religious organisation promotes these four beliefs. And this is important to understand, because once we understand what religious identity or what religious organisation upholds confession, penance, indulgences and forgiveness, then we can compare that religion to what the Bible teaches. The Bible becomes the point of comparison, the benchmark, you see. Now, you may have already guessed, but what you find is that the Roman Catholic Church is this religious identity. The Roman Catholic Church is this religious organisation that upholds, that teaches, that promotes, and was really the source, the origin of these four doctrines. Now, you may be aware that the Catholic Church has seven major sacraments. Think of them as seven foundational rites or practices performed by the Church, seven holy ceremonies used in its functioning. The one we want to consider this evening is called the Sacrament of Penance and Reconciliation. And you notice that this is placed under the category two, the Sacraments of Healing. And the reason is that the Church places this sacrament under that category of healing is because they say that sin is like a bodily wound, a wound that requires healing through forgiveness. And they also call it a sacrament of reconciliation, because reconciliation means to be at peace again, where the sinner is no longer separated from God by sin. And from a first glance, this sounds fine, because the Bible, while it does cause sin, or describes sin as being a wound, the Bible's view is that sin does separate us from God. So you might seem all good so far. Well, the church says that this sacrament encompasses four major elements. Let's look at these four major elements um, as defined by the church itself. So, the first element of this process is contrition or conversion. It's a state of feeling remorseful. The church says that it's a sorrow of soul and the resolution to not sin again. The second is confession, it involves confessing all past sin. To the priest, usually at a confession box, and the church necessitates a minimum frequency of at least once a year in order to perform one's Easter duty. Penance, otherwise referred to as atonement or satisfaction, as a single element of this sacrament, is essentially where the priest sets a task that is required in order to achieve forgiveness and, and somehow make up for the sin committed. And this can involve, for example, repetitions of the rosary or, or various other church rituals. These are determined on the basis of the severity of the sin. And the final element and really, the, I guess, the whole purpose of this sacrament is forgiveness, also referred to as reconciliation or celebration or absolution. It's the release from the feeling of guilt. The priest recites the words of absolution, in the name of Jesus, and the sinner is said to be restored and reconciled to God, Jesus, and the church. So those are the four major elements of this process. But The church today, even in their catechisms, their official documentation, they include indulgences as part of this process. And this is because they're said to be more temporal punishment as required by divine justice. The church says this must be undertaken in the present life through either penance or indulgences, or in the world to come, that is, through purgatory. And so if you choose the indulgences option, then purchasing an indulgement allows the repentant sinner the means of discharging this debt of sin through monetary means. And so if you didn't quite get around to doing enough good work uh, to make up for the bad, well, then you're still okay because, or your family, or your relatives, or your neighbour next door, they can pay for your salvation and ensure you reach heaven in one piece. So how would we make sense of this church teaching? Well, this is the summary in a schematic sense. This is a summary of this sacrament of penance and reconciliation. This is how the church says you'd go about obtaining forgiveness and reconciliation. So if that's the one side, what about the other side of our subject? for this evening. The title suggests that the Bible should be the point of comparison. And this is important. We can't just go by whatever document, uh, in this case, the Church would say the catechisms of the Catholic Church. We can't just go by those, because, well, it doesn't really prove anything if we were to just use that Church document as a basis of comparison. So my point is, the basis of comparison can only be the Bible. No other document can suffice. Now, this shouldn't pose any issue for the church. It shouldn't be any cause of concern because, while well, the church says they descend from the original first-century church set in Jerusalem. The church claims its origins to be with the apostles. The apostle Peter, they claim to be the first pope. So I want you to come across to Acts chapter 2, if you will. I'm going to refer to this first-century church as the first-century ecclesia. The word ecclesia is simply the word church in the Greek New Testament. The reason for this is because I want to differentiate this particular church or ecclesia from all the other religious movements and churches through time. So the question is, of course, are these doctrines and teachings that's held by this first century ecclesia, are they the same as what's upheld by the church? Acts 2 and 37 now when they heard this, the speech of Peter in the previous verses, they, these people, they were pricked in their heart and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Then Peter said unto them, repent and be ye baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins. And the outcome is in verse 41. And then they that gladly received his word were baptized. So the first ceremony that's mentioned of this first century ecclesia is baptism. And according to the biblical definition, this is complete immersion in water. So evidently, sprinkling isn't quite good enough. And verse 38 says that baptism has to do with the forgiveness of sin and through the name of Jesus Christ. You notice it says that. But here's the thing, the act of baptism only occurs once. So the logical question is, well, what about all the sins committed after that act of baptism? Well, the church would say that for all the sins committed after the act of baptism, all the sacrament of penance provides that forgiveness and that reconciliation. Well, is that the case? Is that the Bible's answer? Verse 42, And they, those who were baptized, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So despite how hard you look, there doesn't seem to be any mention here of the prescription of penance. According to the first century ecclesia after baptism, the forgiveness of sin occurs through daily prayer and the breaking of bread. Sin is confessed through daily prayer, and the remembrance of how that forgiveness of sin is achieved through Jesus Christ, that remembrance occurs through the daily uh, through the breaking of bread, and that's going to occur on the first day of the week. So you appreciate instead of these seven sacraments of the church, the first-century ecclesia only has two ceremonies: baptism, verse thirty-eight, which forgives past sin, and the breaking of bread, verse forty-two, which remembers that sins committed after baptism are forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ. But the question remains, is confession and penance and indulgences and the type of forgiveness that the church teaches, is that a valid claim by the church, or is this some kind of religious deception practiced through time? Well, I want to trace the development, the origins of these teachings through church history. I want to show you how that the early church fathers, they struggled to define how that the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God could occur if it wasn't to be based on Bible truth. How would they make sense of the process? What would change if it wasn't to be based on Bible truth? Well, that's precisely what I want to demonstrate to you now. See, it's in the period around 49 to 52 AD that the Apostle Paul is going to warn the Ecclesia in Galatians 1. He says, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. In other words, it's not really another gospel, it's something completely different. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert or change this gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel of heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed, says the apostle. So there's a clear and there's a definitive warning here. The process has already begun. There's another gospel emerging. Well, Acts 20 describes yet another warning. The timing of Acts 20 is 56 AD, and the apostles, speaking to the elders of the ecclesia at Ephesus, He says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, the ecclesia, over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers, to feed the ecclesia of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, says the apostle, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the ecclesia. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So there's yet another warning, a warning that there would arise in this ecclesia some who would speak perverse things. The word means purposely misinterpreting. There's purposeful wrong doctrine. The apostles' true religion would be changed. And so from this point in history, there would now be false doctrine, false religion, false churches and false practices. Come to the year 67 AD, there's another warning, another prophecy of things to come. The Apostle Peter himself is going to add that there's going to be false teachers who would secretly introduce heresies of another religion, another false religion. Well, the question is, what happens next after all these warnings and prophecies? I want to refer you you to a number of quotations from the early church fathers. They express the current church view at the time. I want you to appreciate the timing of these quotations. So 96 AD, St. Clement of Rome, he would have this to say. He said, Be subject in obedience to the priests and receive discipline unto penance, bending the knees of your hearts. So before the end of the first century, there's this idea put forward that penance is required by the priests, and that's the priests that determine this act of penance. Now think about that. Bearing in mind that the, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, was only written in 96 AD, the very same year as the Bible that was completed, there's now another doctrinal view emerging. By 110 AD, there's a chap by the name of Irenaeus, and he says that for as many are as of God and of Jesus Christ are also with the bishop. And as many shall in the exercise of penance return unto the unity of the church, these two shall belong to God that they may live according to Jesus Christ. So to me, a couple of years, the prophecy of Galatians 1, the appeal of Acts 20, the warning of 2 Peter 2, all well, that's begun. There's now another doctrine another religion, another church, another practice of penance before priests. I don't want you to get the impression that these are just somewhat isolated events. come to the year 248. The church now likes the idea of confession occurring before penance. Oregon in 248 says, a final method of forgiveness, how be it hard and laborious, is the remission of sins through penance, where the sinner does not shrink from declaring his sin to a priest of the Lord and from seeking medicine, as it were. But it's really in the year 251 that there's, there was a need to have a formal court assembly at Rome. You see, the early church fathers are struggling to work out how to, what to do with this new idea of penance and this new idea of the process dictating the forgiveness of sins. You see, on the one hand, you've got St. Cyp- uh, Cyprian, he happens to be the bishop of Carthage. And he's going to argue that, we'll let each confess his sin while he's still in this world and while confession can be received and while satisfaction and the, the forgiveness granted by the priests is acceptable to God. And then on the other side, you've got this novation, and he disagrees. He happens to be the leader of the Roman clergy. He missed out being the next pope because of his views. But he would argue the contrary, he would argue that forgiveness, well that's left with God alone, who can grant it. So you can see there's a bit of a debate here. Does forgiveness only come from God? Or can it, as Novation would, would say, or has the church been given exclusive authority to somehow administer the forgiveness of sin, as this Saint Cyprian would put forward? Well, it turns out that the church was happy to become the exclusive administrator of the forgiveness of sins. And this would be the continuing stance that the church would uphold for another 13 centuries until it was all nicely written up and properly formalized, of course, in a later council. And we'll get that, we'll see that in a, in a moment. Now, if you're observant, you'll notice on the keynote that this quote isn't attributed to a saint Novation. And that's because, well, he lost the argument, he was excommunicated and therefore didn't make the qualification of being a saint. Well, by 374, this is the view of the church according to Basil the Great. He says, it is necessary to confess our sin to those to whom the dispensation of God's mysteries are entrusted, that is, the church. And this church becomes so well established in Rome that in 380 it becomes, well, state religion. All other religious systems were banned under Roman law. So if you don't mind, we'll just call this a state-enforced religion. We'll refer to it as the religion of Rome. Well, by 430 AD, the direction of the church teaching is really quite obvious. St. Augustine has this to say, let us not listen to those who deny that the church of God has the power to forgive all sins. I think you would appreciate the progression. By 430, not only has the church ordained the necessity of penance and confession, not only has it become the state-enforced religion of Rome, they also claim to have the power to forgive all sin. Quite an impressive job summary. In his famous work on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Gibbon would write, the church still continued to increase its outward splendor as it lost its internal purity. And just perhaps you're starting to be suspicious of how this church has gone about promoting this new doctrine so far. Well, I want to jump back two years, if you don't mind. It's it's in the year 240, uh, 228, rather, that a, a major issue is... Emerging, It's suddenly discovered relating to this doctrine of penance. In 428, St. Celestine is going to express his horror at learning that penance was refused the dying and that the desire of those was not granted who in the very hour of death sought this remedy for their soul, adding death to death and killing with cruelty the soul that is not absolved, not forgiven by the church. So the issue that the church suddenly came across is that, well, penance could be quite a lengthy process. It often lasted for years at a time. And so logically, the problem lies in the fact that if the person undertaking penance was not forgiven of their sin at the start of their um, period of penance, then that would remain in a a so-called state of sin for years at a time. And there's, there's plenty of examples of penance lasting up to 10 years. And this was a big deal because on that basis the church would have you believe that heaven-going, therefore, was not an option. And you'd appreciate that this would be particularly unfortunate if the person died a sudden death before their time of penance was complete. So I think you can appreciate the slight issue that's beginning to emerge um, and facing the church fathers of this time. Well, if that's the church's view, what about the Bible's view, the alternative view would be that upon appropriate confession and repentance, forgiveness is extended immediately. That would be the Bible's view. Take, for example, the narrative record of 2 Samuel 12, and, of course, the corresponding prayer of David in Psalm 51. You see, in Second Samuel 12, on realization when he's told of his sin, David immediately confesses. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And in Psalm 51, we're told that, well, David isn't confessing to some priest. This is, well, it's a personal, it's an individual prayer to God himself. You Look at verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God. Verse 3. I acknowledge my transgression and sin. Verse 4. It's, well, it's against thee. Thee only have I sinned. What's the result? We notice in 2 Samuel 12 when David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord the very next sentence god immediately extends forgiveness in the very next sentence the lord hath put away thy sin thou shalt not die you see there's no mention of david confessing before a priest there's, well, there's no mention of a priest forgiving david's sin the bible's view is when proper confession is made to god himself then god extends immediate forgiveness I want you to come across to Luke chapter 15, if you will. If that's an Old Testament example, want you to come to the New Testament in Luke 15. Here we have the words of Jesus explaining this exact process of, of confession, of repentance and reconciliation. Luke 15 and verse 18, there's there's two sons. The one leaves his father and well, he lives life on his own terms. But he repents. Look what he says here in verse 18 of Luke 15. I will arise and I will go to my father. So there's repentance. And I'm going to sound to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thine hired servants. So there's confession. And he arose and he came unto his father. Notice this. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him. He had compassion, he ran, he fell upon his neck, he kissed him. And the rest of the parable shows the reconciliation that occurs between father and son. So in this parable, the father representing God, there's immediate forgiveness of sin upon proper confession. The son confesses, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And the father doesn't decide to delay his forgiveness. You know, in verse 20, you'll notice in verse 20, the father, well he sees him a long way off. He doesn't wait until his son finally reaches him or delays a couple of years while the son makes amends for his sin. There's no mention of the son doing penance or chores around the house. There's immediate forgiveness of sin upon proper confession. So if you go with church teaching, then the delay in forgiveness is a very real deal. But if you take the Bible's view, then the confusion surrounding the timing of forgiveness does not exist. Now if we go back to church teaching, there's something called public penance, which was quite a big thing back in the day. This is what St. Augustine in 430 AD says about public penance. If the bishop judge that it will be useful, so notice the choice of language. If the bishop judge that it will be useful to the church to have the sin published, let not the sinner refuse to do penance in the sight of many, or even of the people at large. Let him not resist, nor, though shame, add to his mortal wound a greater evil. So there's now a bit more power being offered the church. Authority is being extended to the bishop and to his council to determine, or well, how far the process of penance could extend and go beyond confession, whether it benefits the church to have a sin published and and publicized. And perhaps you can see how this may well come in useful and be of benefit to the church. Well, coming back to church history, things are going well for the pope and the church and, and the religion of Rome. Well, that is until the Western Roman Empire happens to fall in 476 A.D. A slight inconvenience, I imagine. And then to make matters worse, in 568 to 770, you can see in the keynote there that well, the Pope's having a bit of difficulty with all these Germanic tribes running about Europe. He's got the advance of the Arab expansion to Spain in the west, the Lombards invading Italy to the north, the Vandals coming up from North Africa to the south. So things aren't looking too good for the Pope. And so the Pope appeals for military support from Constantinople. But you see, the Eastern Roman Empire, well, they couldn't exactly help them either because they also were trying to deal with the Arab advance to the East. So the post, Pope has to look elsewhere for military support. So what happens is this, is that the Germanic tribe of the Franks and specifically their leader, Charlemagne the Great, they become the official military protectorate of the pope, and by extension, the official military protectorate of the church. Now, it's all well and good having conquered most of Europe, but Charlemagne decides to make his empire hold to the same religion of Rome. The reason is simple. If you have one religion, then there's a sense of unity within your empire. Now just to make sure you couldn't possibly miss it, this empire would now be known as the spiritual successor of the old Roman Empire. It would be called the Holy Roman Empire in 814. The pope would look after the religious side of the empire, the German princes, the military side of the empire, and this kind of dual rulership, leadership style. But here's the thing: every part of Europe that would fall to the conquests of Charlemagne would capture converts to the church. And in a period where most were uneducated, well the church would appear to have all the answers to, to life, the priests would appear wise and knowledgeable. and of course the Bible was written in Latin, which no one else could understand. So what you've got here, ladies and gentlemen, is the classic environment for the introduction of all sorts of religious ideas. And when the church gained this empire, it would bring the kind of security, the structure, the organization that only ever existed under the past Roman Empire. You see, Europe was once again united under the banner of Christianity. Tertullian, a Catholic author, he would write, the Lord our God no longer reigns, He has resigned all power to the Pope. Quite a bold statement. And yet this is a view that the church is quite willing to cultivate. Not necessarily a biblical view, but this is a view that the church is promoting nonetheless. And perhaps you're starting to see that emerge. Now when you come across to Daniel chapter 7, because in Daniel chapter 7 we have a reference to this Holy Roman Empire An empire that's ruled by the Germanic emperors, but bound by the old religion of Rome. Now we don't have time to consider the real details of this prophecy. I just want you to appreciate the description that's labelled against this religious empire. Daniel 7 and verse 8, speaking of this church gaining this empire. I considered the horns, these Germanic powers of Europe, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, so well, there's another power arising, before whom three of these Germanic horns were plucked up by the root. So three Germanic tribes were defeated and that happened in history. And behold, this horn, and this, this new power arising, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So the question is, well, what is this new little horn? Well, I'm going to put it to you that this is the emerging power of the papacy. It's a revival of the religion of the old Roman Empire. You know, that's hinted at at the end of verse 8. This religious empire is described as having a mouth speaking great things. It's an apt description of the church publishing all sorts of creeds, doctrines, interpretations. You might well say this is the teachings of penance, and reconciliation, forgiveness, contrition. You see, the German emperors of this empire, they could threaten you with the death penalty, and and fair enough. But here's the thing. The pope and this religion of Rome, they had a far, far greater threat. The church could, and the church would, (coughs) threaten you with the penalty that you wouldn't make it to heaven. You wouldn't make it to heaven unless you follow their prescribed manner of penance and reconciliation. The church claimed that they had the keys of purgatory in their hand. They claimed they had the power to open and to shut, to bind or to loose the destiny of the sinner, the choice whether to extend forgiveness or not. So I'll leave it to you to guess which one brought far greater obedience the German emperors or the Pope. and So this empire is controlled, it's dominated by the thinking of this church. But not only that, in verse 8, it has eyes like the eyes of a man. Well, Of course, this is because the Pope was well aware of everything that's occurring in this empire. How could you not, when confession is conditional, penance is prescribed by the priests? I want to read you a quotation which I think demonstrates the power of the church that gained this empire. In many ways, the church was comparable to the Roman Empire of old, whose territorial and administrative organization it had taken over and whose official language, Latin, it maintained in its services, records, and literature. Both were international in character. Everyone recognized the pope as everyone had recognized and worshiped the emperor. The church had its legal systems and courts, its missionaries and crusades on the frontiers of Christendom, were like the ancient legionnaires on the Roman borders. Its monasteries were scattered across the face of the land as thickly as had been the administrative bureaucracy of the empire, and at the head and at the centre of it all, watching over the whole world, interfering in everything, exercising temporal as well as spiritual power. Receiving reports and questions and appeals from all quarters and reserving to himself the settlement of all questions in the last resort, sat the Pope with an authority quite comparable to that of a Trajan or a Diocletian, Roman emperors of the old empire. It's quite a descriptive summary, and perhaps you can see how the church is setting itself up in this period of time. Well, I want you to come across to Revelation chapter 13. The words of Revelation 13 continue the words of of Daniel chapter 7 relating to this church empire. And we have in verse 11 two horns. So this is an empire that's co-ruled. It's an empire that's got two rulers, a, a German emperor and a pope. And notice this, this empire has power in verse 12, As so much so that it causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship. In verse 13, he maketh fire come down from heaven. So this is referring to Charlemagne's military conquest, spreading like fire across the face of Europe. In 33 campaigns, Europe comes under the power of the church. Charlemagne forces Catholic religion upon all. Verse 14, we have a description of the religious aspect of this empire. The church deceiveth them that dwell upon the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do. Powers such as, well I don't know, exercising control over forgiveness. Powers such as guaranteeing salvation through the payment of indulgences. The power of prescribing penance and confession to restore fellowship with the church. These are the kinds of things that the church used and continues to use in verse 14 to deceive those that dwell upon the earth. And what's more, you'll notice in verse 15, well, the church is going to cause as many as that would not worship its, its religion, its doctrines. Those who don't follow its practices, such as, well, confession and penance, well, they they should be killed. So there's an incentive, there's a threat. The church says it has power over life and death, power to leave a person in a state of sin, or the power to extend forgiveness. Do you know what they call it? They call it the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. I want you to notice that phrase at the commencement of verse 15. This image, this system, well it's given life in the sense that well, the papacy is going to become less and less dependent on the German emperors, that the church has become more and more independent and powerful as it comes to life in the year 1077. This is a turning point, a defining event in church history. So what happens in the year 1077? Well, I'll tell you what happens. It's the classic example of penance. And it's going to occur between Pope Gregory Seventh and the German emperor of the time, Henry IV. A couple of years earlier in 1075, the Pope, well, he publishes a document of 27 statements. He presumably wakes up one morning and, and decides that as Pope, and I quote his words, he alone can depose or reinstate bishops. And just in case of emergency, it may be permitted to him to depose emperors. He also quotes a bunch of other interesting things, such as, well, the Pope may be judged by no one, and the Roman church has never erred, neither will it to all eternity. So these are some of the things which he came up with in this 27 statements. What happens? Well, Henry IV, well, he dismisses this attempt of the Pope to gain greater control. He basically just ignores the Pope, starts instating his own German bishops. He also kept on talking to a few of his advisors which had been excommunicated and apparently not supposed to to do that. So the Pope is going to respond in a very specific way. The Pope excommunicates the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Never before had this occurred. This hasn't happened before. The emperors kicked out the church door. But the real issue for Henry was this. The Pope also issues a statement absolving the oath of feudal loyalty, which would bind subjects to the emperor. So Henry's army and his subjects were no longer required uh, to obey him. And so you're not really an emperor if you don't have the support of your people and your army. So to stop his German princes rebelling, the emperor has to take drastic measures. And so in 1077, he travels in winter through the Italian Alps, to gain audience with the Pope. But here's the thing the Pope publicly humiliates the Emperor by making him do penance in the snow. He's barefoot, he's in sackcloth for three days before the Pope agrees to absolve him from his so called transgression against the Church. So here we have the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire kneeling at the feet of the Pope to beg forgiveness. This is a classic example of the power and authority increasing within the church. The church comes to life. It has a life of its own, as it were, as it flourishes in this newfound power. And from this point onwards, it's going to do that very thing. If you excommunicate the emperor, then quite obviously the pope is more powerful than the emperor. So in essence, excommunication and penance is really just a way to resolve conflicts of church and state. But it doesn't stop here. A subsequent pope, a chap by the name of Pope Urban II, he evidently admires Pope Gregory's enthusiasm for increasing church influence. He would launch the First Crusade to recapture the Holy Land from Muslim control. By the way, this is how the church promoted And justified the purposes of these crusades. This is a speech of Pope Urban II. He says, all who die by the way, whether it be by land or by sea, or in battle against the pagans, they shall have, notice this, immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God with which I'm invested. So the church is offering the forgiveness of sin. If You would perform a task set by the church. You can obtain the forgiveness of of sins, says the church. Well, the next major event in church history I want to show you is the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. It's at this church council that the necessity of confession specifically to a priest instead of to God was discussed. Admittedly, confession had been around for a bit. Uh, It was long established. We saw that from the earlier church, uh, church fathers and their references. But the point is, this council made the requirement of confession official in legislation. They went so far as to write up a new article of faith. This is what they said in the meeting minutes. The church did not, through the Lateran Council, prescribe that the faithful of Christ should confess, a thing which, well, it knew to be by divine right necessary and established, but that the precept of confessing at least once a year should be complied with by all and everyone when they reach the age of discretion. So the church specifies a minimum frequency of confession. It had to be at least once a year and this still stands today as, as defined and necessitated by the church. So presumably Every year since 1215, all good devout Catholics have been confessing before a priest at least once a year. But it begs a question, doesn't it? Well, what is the biblical precedent for this necessity of confession once a year? After all, they say it is by divine right necessary and established. Well, there is no biblical precedent for this once-a-year confession before a priest, in the sense that you somehow save up or perhaps if you've got a bad memory you write it down on a piece of paper, you write down all the sins which you've committed through the past year and then you meet up with your local priest. You recall that the ecclesia in Acts 2, well that was characterised by prayer, but not just prayer, it was daily prayer. They didn't just wait for a once a year occasion to confess sin, this was daily prayer. And a weekly remembrance of how that the forgiveness of sin occurs through Jesus Christ. And what's more, the Bible makes it clear that there is only one priest, not any priest in any church down the road. There is only one priest through which we can approach God and ask for the forgiveness of sin. 1 Timothy 2 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 John 2, for if any man sin, we have an advocate. This isn't plural, this is singular. We have one advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews 4, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, on that basis of a single high priest, let us come therefore boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now we haven't spoken much about indulgences so far, but this is where we do. You see, the church had already been conducting a, a prosperous business policy uh, for quite some time. Much of that wealth was obtained by selling bits of the wooden cross and, and various other relics. But then the church got a bit more ambitious and, and focuses their business model on the sale of indulgences, specifically marketed to gain entrance to heaven, to guarantee salvation or on the very least, provide the immediate forgiveness of sin. So evidently, this was to deal with the delayed forgiveness scheme. And so it's in the year three, uh, 1300 AD that Pope Boniface, sees the, the pope of the time, he's going to proclaim what he called a year of Jubilee. And this was for the express purpose of selling indulgences, uh, particularly to those who made pilgrimage uh, to Rome and toured the tomb of Saint Peter uh, that year. Now you appreciate that since well, the granting of indulgences is linked to money, uh, there were a few slight issues uh, which perhaps the church didn't quite expect. Take for example this reference from the Catholic Encyclopedia of all places. They say that well, however innocent in itself this practice of indulgences was, well it was, it was fraught with grave danger and soon became a fruitful source of evil there was the danger that those who granted indulgences just might well be tempted to make them a means of raising money. It cannot be denied that these abuses were widespread. The traders in, in indulgences continued their nefarious practice to the very great scandal of the faithful. This is what they admit, the Catholic Encyclopedia. Well, it doesn't stop there. With the invention of the the printing press, this subsequent availability of a printed Bible. There was a bit of concern raised about the church adopting this money-making role. Because at this time, under the rule of Pope Leo X, that the Vatican was unfortunately a little bankrupt. But Pope Leo's greatest ambition in life, what he really wanted to do, above all else, was to renovate St. Peter's Basilica. Turned out to be a hugely expensive building project and so as to raise a bit more cash money, Pope Leo X makes a special appeal. He makes a special appeal to fill the coffers of the Vatican. One author would write, if the earthly treasury of the Pope was empty, his spiritual treasury was full, and there was wealth enough there to rear a temple, St. Peter's Basilica, that would eclipse all existing structures and be worthy of being the metropolitan church of Christendom. In short, it was resolved to open a special sale of indulgences in all the countries of Europe. This traffic would enrich all parties. From the seven hills would flow a river of spiritual blessing, to Rome would flow back a river of gold. Can you see what's happening, ladies and gentlemen? The church is essentially becoming a bank for the sale of forgiveness. So it's on 1517, arrangements were made for the opening of this market. The license to sell in different countries, well, that was a simple case of going to the highest bidder. Not sure what the scriptural precedent for that was. But anyway, I want to draw your attention to the particular archbishop of Germany. He would appoint a church official by the name of Johann Tetzel uh, to, tell, to sell indulgences across Germany. His business slogan was simple. He said, God in his infinite mercy, he doesn't desire the death of sinners, but that the sinner should pay and live. So you can see the emphasis on purchasing salvation. And so this Johann Tetzel would saunter across Germany selling these pieces of paper. And he would carry around with him a picture of the supposed devil tormenting souls in purgatory to make it a bit more real life-like, I guess. And he would quote the words which he had written on the money chest, which would read, as soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. And because it's got a bit of a rhyme to it, I guess, this became popular church teaching. There would be huge processions. There would be the beating of drums. Banners, candles, a tall red cross would be set up in the market town square. And what's more, notice this. The church even claimed that these indulgences could pardon the sins you intend to commit. So if you're a forward-thinking person, you want to get ahead in life, you can pay in advance for the forgiveness of sins that well, you intend to commit. And then there was this idea of this was a limited market buying opportunity. Johann Tetzel would say, press in now. Come, buy while the market lasts. Should that cross be taken down, the market will close. Heaven will depart, and then you'll begin to knock and bewail your folly in neglecting to avail yourself of the blessings which shall then have gone far beyond your reach. This is what the church promoted. This is how the church says you can obtain the forgiveness of sin. I want you to appreciate the seriousness of the situation. The wealthy could easily purchase indulgences. The real impact would be felt on the poor. They would give away their life savings in order to buy pardons to bring family members from purgatory. I want to show you a quotation from the Pope of this time period. I already mentioned his name. His name was Pope Leo X. In an opulent Good Friday banquet in the Vatican, Pope Leo X would blatantly admit what a profitable affair this fable of Christ has been to us. This is the Pope. This is the leader of the church. This is apparently God on earth. And he says, well, this religion that his church is promoting, well, that's solely a a source of profit for the Pope. And, And not only that, it's a fable also. Quite an astonishing statement. Well, this was too much for a monk by the name of Martin Luther. He would write up a document listing 95 reasons against this practice of indulgences. He nailed it to the Wittenberg church door. And in his 27th point, for which he was excommunicated, he mentioned this said indulgences that pious frauds. Indulgences do not avail those who gain them for the remission of the penalty due to actual sin. In the sight of God's justice. So essentially, what Martin Luther is arguing is that, well, salvation is through faith and grace alone. You can't pay for salvation. He also wants to have church teaching based on the Bible without the over reliance on the church's interpretation. Well, that's what we want to do now. We want to turn to the Bible and see if there is any scriptural precedent for this. Uh, practice that the church is putting forward of indulgences. Now, it's worth pointing out that indulgences, or the need to purchase indulgences, or well, that's never supported or mentioned in the Bible, and another, for that matter, is purgatory, heaven going, or the torments of hell. So, already you can appreciate that this seems to be in a bit of direct contrast to the church. Just come across to Acts chapter eight, if you will. Some in the apostles' day tried to do this very thing. They tried to buy the gift of God through, through monetary means. What's the Bible's answer? Acts eight eighteen. And When Simon saw that through the laying of the hands of the apostles the Holy Spirit was given, he offered the apostles money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent ye therefore of thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. So the condemnation is pretty clear. If you think that the gift of God can be purchased with money, then your heart is not right in the sight of God. There's no question, there's no argument, there's no two ways about it, no confusion, no hidden meaning. The gift of God cannot be purchased with money. Just consider this reference in in 1 Peter 1. If you call on the Father, who, without respect of person, judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, forasmuch as ye know that you were not redeemed with gold or with corruptible things such as gold or silver, uh, think indulgences, but with the precious blood of Christ. So contrary to church teaching, we are not justified; we are not made right before God through gold or silver or funding lavish church construction projects. Our sins are forgiven. We are justified by the blood, this sacrifice, the work of Jesus Christ. And why should we pay money to the church when the price has already been paid, as it were, by Jesus Christ? Ephesians 2, by grace you're saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, not of works like indulgences, lest any man should boast. And I'll give you a reference from the Old Testament, Psalm 49. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem or pay for his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. So just think about it logically. If we were to say that we can somehow earn our salvation, what we're really doing is or somehow expecting that God is not going to uphold his own standard of righteousness, that God would be willing to compromise his own standard of goodness, that God would even consider sin to be tolerated, to be paid off through monetary means. And the Bible makes it clear that God's standard of righteousness is, is not able to be compromised. So the Protestants protest, and because that doesn't seem to be going too well for the the church, the the church saw the need to respond. So what the church did was to call for what would be known as the Council of Trent. It's really a series of discussion that took place over several years, divided into three time periods, in which the church would discuss what they should uphold or, or what potentially they could drop in the face of this Protestant pressure. And this is really the turning point in church history. The church is seeking to redefine itself, to respond to the Protestant divide, to launch a counter-reformation. This is going to be emerging as a new, a improved, a modern church. And I say that because what they formalized in this council has remained in church uh, doctrine. The decisions made in this Council of Trent continue today. Now, in terms of our subject for this evening, the question is, would the church see the importance of confession and, and penance and indulgences and forgiveness that the church teaches? Would would those doctrines be seen as important above all else to the church? Well, the answer is that the church called a meeting. They sat down, got up, and concluded that there was no need to change this sacrament of penance and reconciliation. The church leaders were determined to keep the necessity of confession and penance. They emphasised the the unique, the special, the exclusive authority that was bestowed upon the church to apparently be the sole authority to extend forgiveness. Now I don't have time to consider this council in any detail, I just want to come back to what they said of, of penance and indulgences. Clear up any possible confusion. The church elders would write in this council, they would say, absolution takes away sin, but it doesn't remedy all the disorders that sin has caused. Raised up from sin, the sinner must still recover his full spiritual health, and and notice this, by doing something more to make amends for the sin. He must make satisfaction for or expediate his sins. And In terms of making amends, for sin, The church saw the need to clarify the purpose of indulgences. To facilitate explanation, it may well be to state what an indulgence is not. It is not, says the church, the forgiveness, to, uh, forgiveness of the guilt of sin. It supposes that, well, the sin has already been forgiven. On the contrary, it means a more complete payment of the debt which the sinner still owes to God. Can you see the slight change, the slight transition that's occurred? Now, ladies and gentlemen, just think about that. The Church now says that indulgences cannot purchase salvation outright. They can't be used to guarantee the forgiveness of sin because it supposes that sin has already been forgiven. And yet thousands of good, devout Catholics throughout the Middle Ages, purchased indulgences on this very basis, on this very recommendation of the church teaching at that time. So it appear that church teaching has evolved again. Well, the Bible's view remains consistent, even if the church teaching <coughs> doesn't. Whether it be the old church teaching that indulgences guarantee the forgiveness of sin, or whether it be that indulgences, they just make amends to God, The Bible continues to hold the view that no monetary means whatsoever are somehow able to repay the sacrifice of Christ. So having considered the history, having viewed the past, perhaps you agree that the teaching and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church are rather suspicious, heavily steeped in religious deception. A history of money-making ventures, funding lavish church construction projects, promoting the Crusades as a a forgiveness guarantee. Throughout its turbulent history, I hope to impress upon you that with increasing power and authority, the church saw the need to further explain, to further modify its newly founded doctrines. After all, not every religion becomes a state-enforced religion. Not every church gains an empire. Before the Bible was even completed in 96 AD, there was the beginnings of another church. Another church with another view on forgiveness, another message, another practices. One that demanded obedience through the repetitions of penance. One that sought control through forced confession. One that gained outstanding wealth through the sale of indulgences and one that influenced millions through the claimed authority of holding the keys of forgiveness and reconciliation. So as church teaching evolved throughout the centuries of time, the church changed its practice. It moved away from the simple gospel message, from the first century ecclesia. The early church fathers, they struggled to define how would they deal with this new religion, this new doctrines. How would they deal with problems such as whether forgiveness lies solely with God or perhaps with the church? How would they solve the problem of of people dying whilst undertaking penance? How would they explain the idea of a a delayed forgiveness scheme? How would they respond to the Protestant protest? You might recall I quoted earlier from Gibbon. He would write, the church continued to increase its outward splendour as it lost, as it lost its internal purity. And just perhaps, just perhaps, that quotation summarises what we've considered this evening. But well, The obvious question remains, Having considered the past, having considered the development of this church, would you honestly, personally, individually want to leave your destiny within this religious system, trusting to their priests? Would you want to trust entirely in this sacrament of penance and reconciliation? You see, the church maintains seven sacraments. First century ecclesia commanded only two ceremonies, baptism and the breaking of bread. The one to deal with past sin, the other to remember how to deal with current sin. And so I urge you to look further into these two ceremonies. And if you do choose to consider the truth of the Bible and what the Bible says of of true confession and of true forgiveness, then I leave you with this appeal, this invitation From God Himself in in Revelation 18. Speaking of this church system, come out of her, that ye be partakers not of her sins. That is to say, don't follow these false teachings and practices, that ye receive not her plagues. That is punishment from God. And in Second Corinthians chapter six, God says that if you if you do take up this invitation to come out from among them then God himself will receive you, will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty.